Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, February the 19th, 2015, and this is episode 15. 33 of the Survival Podcast. I got this cool guy on. You've heard me recently mention a place many times, Cuffle Creek, uh, for apple supply. To get different varieties of apples that you can't find anywhere else, some cider apple varieties, and specifically to find apples to grow in hotter climates where you'd normally think you don't grow apples. Well, I first reached out to Kevin Hauser after hearing him on Diego Footer's podcast on Permaculture Voices, episode 97, uh, when I heard him talking about doing just that, he's the gentleman from Cuffle Creek. This guy's a wealth of knowledge. He's also someone that's proven what can be done on a very small property. He's got a small suburban property, and he's got all these different varieties of apples growing on very intensely cultivated, and that gives him all his scion wood, and he's grafting, he's selling apples all over the world. He's even helping to feed people in Africa by helping them to grow apples, believe it or not. And uh, it's pretty amazing what you can do from a backyard. He's here to talk to, about all, uh, talk to us about all of that and more in just a moment. Before I bring him on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey. I'm all for being an armed citizen. I think it's I think it's the I think it's actually a duty of Americans to be armed citizens. I really do. But I think instead of being told, you know, you should have to take a course because the government says so or whatever, we should take training. We should be good at what we do. If you're going to carry a gun, you should be a master of the weapon. And the way you do that is with professional training. You can learn how to do just that at Fortress Defense Consultants. Get in touch with Frank Sharp Jr. and his amazing cadre of instructors over there and get some professional training. I often get the question, what gun should I buy next? And usually I say, if you haven't taken training in a few years, maybe you should make this investment instead of another firearm in yourself. Beware the man that carries only one gun, especially if he knows how to use it. Paraphrased by Jack Spierko, and I recommend you go to Fortress Defense to become that man. Next up today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website. You'll find it at readymaderesources.com. And, I mean, they've got it all. They've got stuff for your solar and wind project. They've got stuff for your garden. They've got stuff for your guns. They've got it from the practical to the tactical. Again, the name of the company is Ready-Made Resources, and they say what they do and do what they say. All the resources for your prepping, ready-made, ready to go, right on their website, readymaderesources.com. Next up today, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have three for you. Nuns in a barrel, risking everything for reform. The Chinese get Portuguese cannons. And the end of the Colomar Union, they're all good as usual. I'm going to read Nuns in a Barrel, just because I, I like the sound of that. I don't know why, but I do. Maybe because I went to Catholic school, and I'm not exactly the most fond person in the world when it comes to memories of nuns, I guess. Uh, Martin Luther is now getting requests. He receives a letter telling him how much they agree with his call for reform and asking for help with a special problem. He calls on a friend who is a city councilman and merchant who makes regular deliveries to the local convent. As a merchant pulls away from the convent, his wagon unloads 13 barrels, each which weigh about the same as a nun and smelling like herring. One of those nuns is named Karina von Bora, and she will one day become the wife of Martin Luther. 
They smuggled the nuns out in barrels. It's obvious that the people are ripe for the message of reform. Things don't fall apart this fast in a world where communication is limited to letters and pamphlets sent by wagon down muddy roads in towns with a literacy rate so low it would take the average modern high school dropout seem like a tireless scholar. Yet these people are willing to carry the message they consider more important than their mortal lives. This year, Johann Etsch and Heinrich Voss will become the first to be burned at the stake for becoming adherents to the Reformation. Martin Luther will write a hymn to these martyrs entitled, A New Song Shall Now Be Begun. Um, I think it's interesting that, you know, we, we, we tend to forget the way some of our traditional faiths treated people in the past. I know the president, who I'm no fan of, took some heat for that, but we, we, we shouldn't forget. Because what the real message here is that any faith, any faith, can be twisted and used for violence. And these weren't people converting to, like, oh, I don't know Hinduism. They were simply following a different path of Christianity, burned at the stake. Say it one more time before you fall for all of the media hype around something else. Burned. Burned at the stake. For having a different viewpoint on the same faith. Anyway... That's not really my take on this. I just I just think that we should understand that. I think that the bigger lesson here is, at this time, you could be burned at the stake. You could be tortured. You could be hung. You could be killed. You could have your head chopped off. There was no internet. There were no smartphones. There were no phones. There was no electricity. It was very hard to spread a message. But it was a message whose time had come. And even with the totalitarian tactics of the day that included murder of innocent people, simply with the accusation of doing something that we wouldn't even consider a crime today. So you don't even have to prove they did it. You should simply accuse them. You have to accuse them and, and, and give the facade that you've proven they've done something that isn't even something we would ever consider a crime today. And you can kill them. Even with that, the state, states of the time, could not stop an idea whose time has come. In other words, if we'd get our shit together, all of this stuff they're doing to oppress our liberty right now, if we really wanted to take it back, it'd be a cakewalk when the idea's time has finally come. And it's come when enough people choose that it's come. My take by Jack Spirico. Next up, before I bring our special guest on, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade or the MSB, as we call it here at the Survival Podcast. You do that, you support the show at a whopping 10 cents per... Uh, 10 cents, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about the sale. A whopping 18.3 cents per episode normally. But right now you can join, use the discount code COLD, C-O-L-D, and that code expires Sunday night. If you email me Monday and say, I forgot, my dog ate it, whatever, I will say, I'm sorry, my sale times actually mean what I say they mean, or they wouldn't mean anything. So you got till midnight Sunday to either join online or send in your, your mail form if you have it postmarked by, you know, Saturday. Actually, if you have it postmarked Monday, I'll take the mail-in form. That's just to be fair. There's no mail unless you get Amazon on Sunday, right? So consider joining the MSB. Discount code is cold, C-O-L-D. Uh, it does expire Sunday. Great time to do it. And it is less than 10 cents an episode if you join during the sale. So if you think this is worth a dime today when you're done, consider becoming a member 
and help us keep doing what we do for you here at the Survival Podcast. You get a lot of great discounts, a lot of other cool stuff, all the military service stuff, discount stuff. If you've been waiting on that and you're one of those guys, I'd take the sale price. It's better. It's better than the discount, and you can always cancel, and then next year get the military price, which applies to recurrent memberships. Anyway, with that, I am uh, now happy to in- introduce our special guest. His name is Kevin Hauser. He is a uh, guy that really specializes in apples, and he kind of fell into it a weird sort of way. He's an awesome guy. He's involved with scouting and a lot of other really great stuff, and he's just a guy that I think, when I listen to him talk, I think this is a guy that's a servant to humanity. And uh, we need more people like that all around the world, and certainly here in America. And it's my good fortune now to have him with us today to talk about growing apples in hot climates where you'd think maybe, oh, I can't do that. Yes, you can. He's here to tell you how. And with that, hey, Kevin, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Hey, man, I got to tell you, you have, uh, you, you don't even know it yet. You've had a huge impact on what's going on on my property right now. Um, not only, I mean, we were emailing earlier, am I going to buy some trees from you, but I'm going to emulate a lot of your work in a, a slightly different climate. Um, and that all stemmed from listening to an interview with you on Permaculture, uh, Voices podcast. Uh, it was episode 97, I believe, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes today as well, because it was a great interview. And uh, so I just like to thank you because we're going to get into what you're actually doing, but the work you're doing is having a meaningful effect. I know it's happening in, even in some third world nations, but I think a lot of people in this audience are excited to have you on today because they're now looking forward to doing what you've done in their own biomes. I'm glad to hear it. So can you tell people how you got into growing apples, right? I mean, when you were like a, a fifth grade kid picking your nose at, at lunch, were you thinking, one day I'm going to grow up? And I'm going to go out and I'm going to plant like 9 million apples on, on, on a quarter of an acre and see which ones are awesome and which ones aren't. No, it's just the opposite of that. I guess I could call myself God's joke on the apple growing community because I have no background or education in either horticulture or in apples. In fact, uh, we would go with our scout troop every year to an apple farm and pick apples there. And I would have absolutely no curiosity about it. And we had a, a Granny Smith tree at a rental we had, and I had absolutely no curiosity about it. And I guess it started one day. I'm a construction manager by trade, and I'm driving down the street in a neighborhood with the houses that had been condemned for a new development. And I stop my truck and back up and says, my goodness, look at all the apples on that tree. And it was a Dorset golden tree, and it's probably about 20 feet tall, as tall as the house. And it was just loaded with apples, and there was a bunch on the ground underneath of it, too. And so I went over and uh, loaded up my lunchbox and shared them with people at work. And as reading it, they thought, wouldn't it be nice if we could save that tree for the school that's been slated to go there? And I checked the plans and the grading and everything was all wrong, and the tree had to come out. I thought, well, I've heard of this thing called grafting once, and I wonder if it could be done with it. And so I called a guy, and he told me how to do it over the phone. So I drove back and got a bunch of cuttings off the tree. wasn't really uh, sure of what I was doing and bought a few Granny Smith potted trees and then uh, grafted on some of those buds, and one of the buds took. And it fruited the same year and grew a branch about three feet long. And then the next year, the branch just exploded in blossoms, and I was pretty hooked after that. Cool, man. So then where where did that lead you? Because you're growing apples in – just before you answer that part of it, just give people real quick, what is your climate like? Where, where are you at, and what are your highs, your lows, your average rainfall, that type of thing? 
I'm in Riverside, California. This is traditional citrus country. It's uh, a Mediterranean climate where we have uh, hot, long, dry summers and relatively mild winters. Uh, right now, it's about 75 degrees, but it has been 80 degrees for the last two weeks, actually pushing 90. And nighttime lows can get down around freezing, but it never gets much below freezing. Uh, winter, uh, summers are very hot. Averages about 100 degrees. Uh, we get about six to eight inches of rain all in the wintertime. Uh, summers are usually hot and dry. We also get some hot and muggy, hot and windy, uh, but heat is the general rule with everything here. Chilling hours-wise, we get between 200 and 400 chilling hours. Okay, and um, so with that, how did you end up in this this whole world? What, what kind of was the start uh, starting point for you? Uh, beyond you know that first graft, how did you how did you get to where you're at today? <laughs> well, um, at an elementary school, I was putting in a portable classroom, and there was a Brazilian pepper tree there that was in the way, and so I put a big orange X on it to uh, let the arborist know that this has to come out. And it started a letter writing campaign at the school where they uh, wrote a thing saying "Save the historic tree," and uh, the newspaper got wind of it and came out and took a picture of this little girl uh, trying to scratch the orange X off the tree. And then the kids grew pictures of uh, a tree with, that's crying and saying, you know, don't cut me down, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it got a lot of attention. And the principal says, OK, look, the tree has to come out. But uh, in return, uh, we're going to plant a bunch of other trees. And he calls me up and says, what kind of, how about some fruit trees? Because it was an agricultural theme campus. And I says, yeah, why not? And he says, what kind? And I says, well, I know how to graft apple trees. And so uh, we ended up planting like 50 apple trees uh, on both sides of that portable that we installed there. And um, they didn't know how to take care of it. And so I started doing research on how to care for this apple tree and uh, write up a little uh, how-to guide for him. And that got me interested in, well, you know, what what varieties are going to do well here? Mm. And we go to Home Depot and bought all the ones that are over there in the big box store. And it was Anna and Dorset Golden and Ein Schemmer, and that was about it. And at that time, there was starting to be able to uh, get cyanwood over the Internet before you'd have to write to people. And it was long and involved process, but it got much easier then. And I also found an organization that sold rootstocks, a uh, wholesale rootstock supplier but they only sold in bundles of 50 hmm. and so uh i stepped out on a, a limb that year we had just uh, cleared some uh room on our property and i ordered 200 rootstocks and about 100 varieties of cyanwood and uh, grafted like 100 and so trees here and then put a, another 100 in pots and that was the start of uh, really branching out and seeing what kind of uh, varieties would grow here and which ones would fruit. And they grew like crazy. They grew like six to eight feet the first year and uh, grew branches and set some fruit buds. And uh, during the wintertime, all the leaves fell off. I said, well, here we go. It's, I wonder what's going to happen in the spring. I hope something fruits or else I'm going to be the biggest fool alive. And uh, sure enough, they did flower, and turns out that spring was one of the hottest springs we'd have in years. It was 100 degrees every stinking day in April. It was just a miserable, long, hot spring. But they've uh, blossomed and fruited normally, and 
uh, the trees were still young, and so we were getting like onesie twosies, but uh, some of the apples were horrible, and some of the apples were really good. And it didn't really seem to depend on where the apple variety came from. Some from hot climates were good, but some from cold climates were good. So you, you've said that basically the chilling hour requirement largely is based on mythology, I think was one of the things I said, you heard you say one time, that you don't really know. And, and so what are some of the misconceptions about that? One, like you said, is, well, this apple comes from Maine, so it must be a northern apple. But are there any others? Uh, Honeycrisp has uh, not fruited heavily for us, but the quality has been outstanding. Uh, has a good crunch, good sweetness, good uh, complexity to the flavor. And we always heard it said that because uh, that's from you know northern Minnesota that it needs a nice cold climate to be its best. Well, I've had a bunch of them from the store from Washington State. None of them come close to the ones that we're picking off the tree here. Now, that may have to do with the way that they pick them. They pick them uh too early or they leave them in storage for too long it may have something to do with it but uh, the best ones i've ever had are off our tree here okay um yeah that's good to hear because that was one i particularly didn't think did well in the south and my wife loves those apples so as many as we're planting a couple of them even if they're not that productive it'd be good to have around here you guys even have apples growing in the in the tropics how the heck does that work because That just seems ridiculous to people. I mean, it's a deciduous tree. It doesn't drop its leaves. How the heck does this work? Uh, in the tropics, you have to use what's called tropic apiculture. Uh, the daylight and temperature length are fairly constant year-round there. In other words, uh, you're not going to have a spring, fall, or shorter days or longer days, which is one of the things that we think triggers dormancy in our trees here. And so in order to simulate dormancy, uh, you have to strip the leaves off the tree by hand. And by doing that, in about uh, four to six weeks, it starts uh, blossoming again. Because by stripping the leaves, you're fooling the tree into thinking that it has gone through a winter already. And, of course, it's warm temperatures and the long day length, which makes it think that it's spring. And so the tree thinks that uh, the chilling hours, whatever they may be, have been satisfied and it's time to fruit again. And so that's the way that it uh, starts fruiting. Now, uh, in the tropics, the tree has some uh, particular habits that it will revert to if you don't do any intervention with it. It will have long, uh, whippy branches emanating really low on the trunk and pretty much paralleling the, the main trunk if there happens to be one. And will get like uh, 9 feet, 12 feet long, and it will never be productive. It turns into this funny-looking Italian cypress-type looking tree. And so you have to have intervention on it very early on. As the uh, tree starts to grow, you have to uh, make sure to bend the branches horizontally, wedge the tiny branches with a toothpick to go straight out from the trunk. And by doing this, you're taming what's called the runaway apical dominance. That's for uh, each branch to try to race to get to the light in a closed forest canopy. And also because since there's no fall or winter there, it never slows down the growth, and so it will continue to grow like this, uh, getting real long and unproductive. And by intervening early on and getting those branches going horizontally, it controls the length of the branches to where it looks pretty much like any other tree that you see in a modern high-density apple planting system, where it's a, a tall tree with skinny, drooping branches, which produce fruit spurs, which uh, controls the wild runaway growth on it. It becomes more of a productive form. 
So the the hand of the of the the orchardist then actually uh, counteracts nature there and causes the apple to behave as though it were somewhere else. Yes, and it's like day and night between the true trees. We have photos of both of them showing a untrained tree and a trained tree, both in the same uh, climate and the same variety. But one is this tall, whippy-looking bush, and the other one is this uh, tree loaded with apples, and it looks like a normal tree that you'd see probably around here. Hmm. Hmm, interesting. And you guys even have apples in, like, East Africa? Actually, we have a branch of our nursery in East Africa. We have Cuffle Creek Apple Nursery of Uganda we incorporated in 2012, and we're doing tens of thousands of trees there this year. Uganda has had an apple industry for years, and um, a, since 2007, and in uh, 2012, I mean 2005, and then in 2007, they came out with a study looking at the uh, constraints of the apple industry there. Uh, the two biggest diseases that they have are scab and powdery mildew, uh, fungal diseases. And the apple varieties that they were growing were the very low chill ones like Anna and Dorset Golden, which have no uh, good resistance to those diseases. And so they were trying to figure out how to counter that. Uh, the apples weren't really being accepted in the marketplace as compared to the imports from South Africa. And they have no refrigeration and poor roads, which makes uh, distribution difficult. And so we set about to address those deficiencies and come up with a plan to be able to uh, improve the apple industry there in Uganda. And we're doing it several ways. First is by having a series of apple uh, varieties that have successive ripening to it to where uh, you'll have something that you'll be able to pick fresh every day off the tree and take it to market. And then when that variety is done bearing, then the next one comes into bearing. You could take those to market every day so you're not having to store them. The second of all is having varieties that uh, keep better than the summer varieties that they have right now, the Anna and the Dorset Golden. These are ones that were traditionally grown in the uh, 18th and 19th century here in the United States to where you pick it and it will keep well uh, off the tree without refrigerated storage for a few weeks. And then finally, uh, the dehydrating market where they're uh, processing them slicing and drying them, and a lot of the infrastructure is always already in place for doing that there in East Africa. For the, They do it with the pineapple and the banana and the papaya, and they slice it and dry it and send it for exports to uh, like Whole Foods markets type uh, places in Europe. And, so with, uh, and also increasing the appearance of the apples to be able to compete with the South African and other imports, uh, having varieties that color up well despite the uh, warm nights, and have the size and shape that people are looking at, and of course the quality. Very cool, man. And and how does heat really affect apples? We've talked about a little bit here from a, you know a, a solar aspect ratio in the tropics and all. But where you live, again, what's what's a typical high temperature in August? August is uh, 100, 105 degrees. September it's, is actually our our hottest temperatures. Um, we get these. Monsoon moisture that wraps around from Mexico and uh, comes from across the desert before it hits us. And unfortunately, the mountains strip all the rain out of this humid uh, <laughs> weather. And so all we get is the heat and the humidity. And it can hit 110, 113 in uh, middle of September. In fact, we have some of the hottest temperatures on Earth at that time. We've compared it with Saudi and Arabia and Algeria, and we beat them for the high temperatures on a few days in September. And so uh, the heat does different things to different varieties. Some of them, it just turns them into mush. It's the most horrible thing you ever bit into. 
other ones, they hold up just fine. They're still crunchy and juicy and spicy. When you're picking them off the tree, you'd think they'd be cooked uh, to a you know baked apple. And the ones that fall off the tree certainly get cooked on the ground very quickly, but the ones on the tree are still fresh and crunchy and sweet, and it all depends on the variety. Uh, and Can I ask you about a specific variety? Because sure. since, since I heard you say this, uh, and I have like 40 different varieties of apples on my property mm-hmm. right now that are coming up, so it's it's not a horrible thing. But I have three of something you've called detestable, Earn Shimmer. What makes that a detestable apple? I mean, I heard about it and Dorset Golden and Anna, and they all came out of like Israeli research. And I thought, well, that'd be cool. It's like in one place I planted like three of them in a row in my demo garden and all. And it's detestable. Is it just mushy or does it, I mean, what? It goes, it goes from green and hard to being uh, uh, soft and mealy. And it, it is, some apples have like 10 minutes where it's good, where okay. there's a cross between being green and starchy and sweet and mushy to where it's kind of still firm but sweet. And Einshemmer seems to skip that stage. It goes from being green and starchy to uh, sweet and mealy and mushy uh, in record time. Huh. And, and there seems to be some unwritten rule that the worse an apple variety is, the more productive it is. And so you get a bunch of apples off this thing, but they're all horrible. And it ripens two weeks too late to really be a good pollinator for either Einshammer or, I mean, Dorset Golden or Anna. Okay. So it's useless. So I'll probably, what I could do then, I could take two of the three and overgraft them and maybe use one to feed chicken or feed ducks with or something. They'll probably eat it. Uh, yeah, but if you're going to have an apple on your, your property, you might as well be a good one. Yeah, uh, but you know, here's the thing. Is this an educational property? So like, this is why you don't plant this. Yeah. We, <laughs> We're a residential lot in a residential neighborhood. Okay. We, don't, we don't have room for icky apples, and so yeah, we've got if, three acres. So <laughs> if we have if we have one of, like I said, well, I was thinking I could take two of them and overgraft with something more useful, and maybe take that third one and just be like, never plant well, this apple here. Eat it. You can see why. <laughs> well, a couple of years ago, uh, we ran across a variety called Shell of Alabama. That seems to be the antithesis of the Einshemmer. It's uh, it's uh, it bears. Like crazy, it's easy to mistake for uh, Dorset Golden because it's just a maniac the same way. Mm. But the apples are much firmer, and they hang on the tree much longer than the uh, Dorset Golden ones, and they take the full sun, whereas the Dorset Goldens, the ones that are on top in the sunlight, turn to mush. Really? And so we've been phasing out uh, Einshemmer and Dorset Golden in favor for Shell of Alabama and keeping it as a pollinator for Anna, which, by the way, is one of the premier killer pie apples out there because it's a summer apple it gets overlooked a lot because uh you know and beginning in july you're not looking for apple pie you're looking for a peach or something and mm-hmm. uh but anna makes an absolute killer apple pie that you can smell baking two miles away that's awesome so where did you where, where did you start with all these varieties because like how many varieties do you currently have i know you've like you know, I've tested tons, and some of them you're like, yeah, ripping that one out of the ground. That's not going to work. Yeah, we go through about 15 or 20 varieties a year, uh, I'll, and there's no real rocket science to picking them out. You just go through list, and yeah, that sounds interesting. That sounds interesting. Sometimes I'll get a tip here and there. Uh, there's a, a YouTube with Stephen Hayes. Uh, I, he calls it Fruitwise, and He's on there eating Sturmer Pippin, and he's complaining, yeah, this really needs a longer, hotter season than it gets here in England, so I'll note that. Okay, let's try Sturmer Pippin. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other ones are just coming off patent. Um, 
because we propagate and, and grow them here, we'll be looking for things that are used to be popular like in Australia. Um, uh, for instance, uh, Sundowner uh, just came off patent, and so we'd be trying it out. Uh, Crips Pink, also known as Pink Lady, had just come off patent, and so we'll give it a try and see how it does. And if they're good, then we will uh, send it over to Uganda and have them test it out there and see how they like it. Some of the varieties are old, uh, old southern varieties um, uh, from apple hunters back in North Carolina and Virginia. They would drive the backwoods and hollows of uh, the farms, and they'd find an old apple tree in back of some farmhouse, and they'd go knock on the door and ask if they know what the variety is, and someone will say, well, yeah, Granny knew, but she's gone now, or they'll say, oh, that's a summer orange, or that's hung, or that's a, a magnum bonum, and so they'll take a cutting of it and grow it out. And Mind you, this is like a 100-year-old tree. Mm. And then they will, when it fruits, they will compare the fruit to, uh, and what the occupant of that house said it was, they'll compare that to some old nursery catalogs from like the late 1800s, and early 1900s and see if that's a match. And if so, then they save that variety and then they'll uh, graft it on and as a multi-graft tree or single grafts and uh, that variety has been saved. And so I'll check with them and says, look, here's the climate. I'm, I'm looking at growing this in. Uh, what's done well down in the Piedmont areas there or the coastal areas in North Carolina? And they'll give me a list of 20 or 30, and I'll grow them out and dry them out. And we've had some uh, good successes with those. And what's uh, been nice about it is a lot of those varieties were uh, naturally disease-resistant to the scab and the uh, powdery mildew that they also have the same problems with there in North Carolina. In fact, the North Carolina summers uh, mirror a lot of the weather that we're getting in Uganda year-round, and so if it does well in North Carolina. A lot of times it does well in Uganda. They have the same red clay, the same heat and humidity, the same uh, disease pressure and bugs. And so uh, we found something that's been growing in that climate a couple hundred years and uh, been able to send it over to Uganda with a pretty uh, good reassurance that it's going to do well. That's that's kind of amazing, really, when you think about it that way. That people are like saving apples. But we back to just a second. The one thing I heard you say there is something I never thought of. Basically, you use other people's failures to lead you to your successes. So if somebody in a really cold climate says this just doesn't work good here, it's probable that it might work well somewhere warmer or somewhere with longer days or a different type of growing season. Yes, there's many apple varieties that need a great deal of heat to be its best. Um, Granny Smith is one of those. Uh, Fuji's one of those. Um, Pink Lady loves a good long hot season, and they will identify some of these in uh, colder climates and saying, "Yeah, this does well here, but purportedly it does much better down in the south." And so those are the ones that we'll gravitate towards and try those. Other ones uh, from the north, like Northern Spy, are horrible in the south, and they need a good cold climate, and we've tried them and rejected them, and uh, we're willing to go past those and keep looking for the ones that do well in the south. Do you have any that you expected were going to be really good, and then they they just weren't? I mean, because when we hear Southern Apples, I've read the, the book Old Southern Apples, and a lot of it centers around places like Virginia and West Virginia, and I guess if you live in Maine, that's the south, but if you live in Texas like I do, or California like you do, uh, and you look at you know West Virginia, where our farm up there is, I looked the other day, and it was nine below zero. Um, you and I never see that and don't want to. Uh, so that's not exactly the south, even though they might refer to it. 
So have there been some that, like, you know, they've done good in the Carolinas, they've done good in Virginia, Southern Virginia, you thought this was going to work, you put it in the ground there, and it just don't? Yeah, there's one called Carolina Red June, and it was mushy every year, no matter what we did. Uh, another one is an Australian variety called Brayburn. Um, and the problem with both of these is because uh, we have such early heat in the year, uh, they would be low chill, and they would sprout out, like, uh, in... Um, end of February or March, and then be ripening in like uh, end of July and into August during our heat, where in a place with a cooler climate, they would uh, blossom out much later in the year and then start ripening you know, in September and October when they're starting to get their cool weather. And so in our climate, they ripen in much hotter weather than they're accustomed to ripening in other climates, and because of that, the heat gets to them. And so we need to focus on the ones that keep that good quality in the heat or will blossom so late in the year that it's into uh, late October and into November when it ripens for us. Because beginning of October could still be well into 100 degrees here. Hmm. And have there been some that are like your favorites, like the stuff that – and were any of them things that like – it was a long shot, like a Hail Mary pass, and it, you know, you dropped it in the end zone to Dwight Clark or whatever at the end of the game. Yeah, there's one called Wealthy. It's from uh, northern Minnesota. In fact, it was the first apple that was able to grow in Minnesota. They would uh, grow trees for a few years, and then a test winter would come along and then kill every fruit tree in the northern Minnesota down to the ground. And this one was bred by Peter Gideon in the 1860s and was the first commercially successful apple there in northern Minnesota, and which basically launched the fruit uh, research industry there at the University of Minnesota and the uh, fruit industry for the state. And it does very well in our climate. It, it uh, fruits early and heavily, and uh, the fruit quality is outstanding. Yeah, it's a beautiful apple, and it does very well here, and uh, I understand it's grown commercially in Nicaragua also. Awesome. And what are what are some of, like, can you kind of take us through an apple season? Because you have, like, this, you're not year-round harvesting, but you have a really long harvest season from where you first start picking apples to where you're kind of done for the season. Yeah, right now uh, this is uh, – End of January, early February, we have Anna and Dorset Golden and Shell of Alabama are blossoming, and they will ripen right around the last week of school. For us, that's like uh, the third week in June, uh, all the way up through uh, July. And then there's a couple weeks uh, lag on theirs, and then we'll get the early summer ones, uh, Arc Charm, and uh, after that will be Williams Pride. And then into the early fall apples, uh, we'll have Hawaii. And then Bramley Seedling, that's a British cooking apple, will ripen during the hot part of se September, mid-September. Then early fall, we'll get Hung, H-U-N-G-E. And um, after that, the, the fall apples ripen over a period of like from end of October through oh January. Uh, Oct uh, November is when a lot of the top quality apples will come into being King David, Dixie Red Delight, uh, the Fujis will be going around then. Um, and into January will be Sundowner, Lady Williams, and Yellow Newton Pippin is one that we discovered was very good this year. And that's an interesting one because uh, they look like they're ripe the end of October. And you bite into it and there's 
pretty flavorless, and so I gave up on it and yanked the tree out. Then I found a uh, tree that I'd planted at an elementary school like uh, 2007, and it was loaded with apples in January. And I thought they were mushy by then, and I picked one, and to my surprise, it was firm, and it was really good. And so it just turns out I was picking them a couple months too early because, mm. you know, who back east would think to leave the thing sitting on the tree for two months and pick it in January? No one will tell you that because uh, most of the country where they grow apples, January, there's snow on the ground and not a leaf on the tree. And can you talk about with all of these apples, you have a, a method of grafting for the trees that you sell. And it's not just the way you do it for the trees you sell. It's the way you do it for the apples you plant on your own property and, and, and I can imagine elsewhere. That's um, a little bit different than what people have come to expect in buying trees from major nurseries that are shipped in great big boxes as bare roots. Yeah, we do what's called bench grafts. This is a tiny infant tree. And... It's useful for the places we ship because we ship overseas uh, to climates in Africa. We ship to Bangkok, Dubai, uh, Suriname, uh, Namibia in Africa. And uh, bench crafts are about 18 inches long, about three-eighths of an inch thick, and have roots on one end and one single bud grafted on the other end. Uh, we've seen in the past where some people will graft a scion onto the rootstock with like five or six buds on it, but we've determined that either all the buds take or none of them take, and having systems redundancy on it really doesn't help you much. Okay. And, if, and in fact, it makes it harder for you to distinguish between the suckers that are coming up from the rootstocks and the gra- the bud that's coming from the sign itself and you're more likely to rub off the wrong one when you're rubbing off the growth that you don't want from this and also having a longer scion graft onto the rootstock makes it more prone to getting bumped around during shipping and like i said most of ours get shipped overseas uh, on a long journey and they get a lot of bumping around and so we found the best rate of success has been with the one bud grafted onto the rootstock. It makes a nice compact package, and it can get knocked around both during shipment and planting and still have a good success rate of sprouting because we guarantee our trees, and we don't have a whole lot of uh, warranty claims of the thing not taking. And how does that compare for a person, then, that's that's purchasing your trees versus going to uh, uh, either – I mean, there's – they're totally different here. A box store where they're shoved in a pot or a quality bare root. I mean, how long does it take these trees to kind of catch up to uh, what people are maybe more accustomed to? Well, the ones in the uh, commercial nurseries are usually a two- or three-year-old tree. They grow the rootstock from a year, and then they'll bud on a, a bud and then let that grow for a year or two. And When people say, you know, I want a tree that's going to be bearing next year, I'll usually send them to uh, one of the commercial nurseries that uh, we're friends with. We'll send them to either Trees of Antiquity or if you're back east, we'll send them to Century Farm Orchards or uh, Big Horse Creek Farm. And they'll send you a nice caliper trunk uh, tree that will bear in a year or two. Ours usually take about three years of training before they'll start bearing. Uh, And because of that, a lot of our orders are either for people who are buying trees that they can't get anywhere else because of the varieties, or they want a bunch of them. They got some land, and they want to plant 40 or 50 trees. And ours uh, retail for $10 a piece rather than uh, the $30 or $40 a piece a larger tree would be, and they're cheap to ship. And so we have a $15 flat rate shipping within the U.S., and uh, 
that saves people money, but it costs them time. And so uh, it depends how much time and money you have will depend on uh, what you're growing. In Uganda, we plant them in the ground and graft them, and then when we get an order, they dig them out of the ground, throw them in the back of a car, and drive them out to the climate's house and then plant them. Uh, with the green leaves on the tree, they don't wait till bare root season. Mm. And because the climate is so lush there, they're able to get away with that without the trees wilting and uh, suffering for it. Uh, if we tried to do that here in dry, hot California, it would incinerate the tree, and you could never do that. And so we just ship during dormant season, uh, late January through March, and then after that we shut the refrigerators off, and that's it for the rest of the year. Okay. Um, do you think, though, that maybe there's an inherent value – in having that rootstock only have to come up out of wherever it was produced and be put back into the ground one time to something that's done like yours versus if I buy, and I mean, we have a great supplier and I buy a lot of trees from Bob Wells Nursery, but you know, and he does an incredible job, but the, the reality is in the end, They're, they're grafting a tree, they're growing it in maybe a, a bed, then they're pulling it up out of the ground. They might, if I'm buying it in the fall, it's gone into a pot, it's had to have been pruned off. Whereas if I get a tree from someone that's doing bench grafting like you are, that rootstock is, is, is been disturbed once, and when I put it back in the ground, it is never to be disturbed again. Yes, there is benefit to that. Um, if your fertility is good, if you've prepared the ground correctly by uh, deep ripping it and Uh, checking your pH, checking your fertility, it will outgrow a nursery tree that's been dug up and moved over to your place. Um, we've seen them where the first year I had a Bramley. Boy, I got the thickness of a shovel handle the first year, wow. and it looked like a three-year-old tree, and people were shocked when they see it. And I've had other clients have the same experience, and they're blown away and send me photos of it. Says, I can't believe the vigor on this tree. It looks like it's been in the ground longer than this one that I purchased. However, if your fertility is bad, if your pH is bad, you'll get maybe six inches of growth on this, and you think, ah, oh, this thing's a bummer tree, and uh, get fed up with it, and uh, you're better off just pulling it out and starting the next year with another one. So it depends on the preparation and the care that you give it. Some people uh, aren't accustomed to having to train the tree while it's growing. By uh, Even here in our climate, you've got to bend the branches down and pay attention to it, or else you're going to get either... Uh, suckers coming up from below the graft from the root stocks that will overtake the tree and you'll see this beautiful looking tree there and you're thinking you're gonna get fruit off it and then when the leaves fall off you realize that it's coming from below the graft and the apples are going to be nasty and the uh, sprout coming off from above the graft off the scion is only about an inch or two long and so uh, you've lost a year there by taking uh, by not looking at it sure so So if you're used to just having citrus or avocados to where you're basically letting the tree go however it will, uh, you're not going to be able to do that with apples. Um, and that's true of, of any apple. It's just probably more true when you're starting out with that little bitty bud graft down there, and it's probably easier if you're not paying attention to, to how those suckers come up. But there are some things you need to do differently. Um, you, you know, For all intents and purposes, if I get a good bare root tree, I can dig a hole. I can plop it in there. Uh, I can throw some irrigation on it, and I can walk away, and uh, I can come back and you know prune it when I need to, train it when I need to. But I don't have to, I don't have to really do a lot that first year, other than make sure it doesn't have a bunch of suckers coming off of it. I have to take a little bit different type of a care procedure with these bench grafts, correct? 
Correct. Uh, they do need a bamboo stake next to it, and as that one bud starts to grow, you're going to be rubbing the rootstock suckers off because if any of them pass up the height of the scion, the highest sprout gets the most energy, and so they'll pass up the growth on it. And so you need to make sure to rub the rootstock suckers off, and you'll be training that scion up that bamboo stick because that graft is still tender, and it's really easy to, to uh, knock that sprout off and break it off at the graft union. And you'll be training it up the, um, the bamboo stick with either uh, landscape tape or a little twist ties. And as the branches start to sprout out from it, if they do, first of all, you'll be rubbing off the ones that are below three feet because you don't want to branch that low. Mm -hmm. And the other ones that you're allowing to grow, you'll be wedging a toothpick in there to push them sideways or else they will start to grow straight up and be vigorous and pass up the huh. growth of the central leader. And so by wedging the toothpick in there and pushing them down to horizontal, you're establishing the good branch angles, which will be able to hold a lot of the fruit. I know also, there's no – you don't have a video in front of you. Can you describe a little bit what you mean by wedging a toothpick in there? Well, as the sprout starts to come out, it's it may be coming out at a 45-degree angle or steeper as compared to the trunk. Okay. You're going to want to be uh, pushing it down sideways so it comes almost straight out from the trunk. And the way you do that is take a toothpick and you uh, come up a couple inches onto the sprout and stab it into it and push it down and then stab the other end of the trunk so it makes like a 45-degree angle between the branch and the trunk, and it pushes that branch down. What that does is establish a low branch angle on that branch that's coming out, and the grain of the wood will follow that curve, and it will be a strong union where it attaches to the tree rather than a weak union like a high branch angle would have. And I'm just trying to visualize, so I guess since the tree is so young and the branches are so small, just basically, I, I mean, you're talking about a double-pointed toothpick used horizontally and kind of like the little bit of a point kind of pricks in to, to hold it in place? Yes. Okay. Okay, I just want to be sure there because I'm familiar with training branches, but we would generally do that with wire and a couple hooks and kind of. But I've not really worked with these young trees like this before, so that makes sense. Uh, first of all, it's cheap. Yeah. And uh, second of all, if you wait too long, even with a wire, you may bend the branch horizontally, but you're still going to have that uh, narrow crotch angle yeah. where it attaches to the tree and that's the weak spot that's where when you get a load of uh, fruit on that branch it will tear that branch off the tree and strip a you know six inch uh, piece of bark off it too as it comes off and by having this wide branch angle it makes a very strong union with the tree where the branch will bend but never break now you've also said i've heard you say that uh, you got to do a little bit things differently with irrigation correct yeah, when you first plant the bench graft, there's no leaves on it, and so there's no transpiration going on, and there's not a lot of water moving through that tree. And so the roots, if they get watered heavily, will just sit there in the water and tend to rot. And that's the number one killer of these young trees that I've seen next to uh, uh, borers coming in and girdling the trunk. And so after you plant these bench grafts and you water them in to settle the uh, air pockets out of the soil, you don't give them any more water until they start to push leaves because when the leaves come out, that's when water starts moving through the tree and transpiring into the air and you get some movement through there so the roots aren't just sitting there in a soggy uh, zone that deprives them of the oxygen that they need. 
So that makes sense because we basically you're you're rotting the roots out otherwise. And, yeah, and, and it's it probably not just just starting to grow, but it probably takes a while till there's enough uh, mass above the ground to really keep that going through transpiration. Yeah, and what happens is people see it; they'll have soggy roots and have weak growth, and so. Uh, a few leaves will push out and they'll look kind of uh, iffy. And so people thinking, oh, this poor thing needs more water. And then they'll really dump the water on it. And that just finishes it off. And then those leaves that did sprout out will shrivel up and die. And people think, oh, this was a junk tree and um, uh, the, the graft didn't take or something like that. And they'll get upset about it where really you killed it with the water. Mm. So it sounds like this is uh, it's a good method. But it may not be for everyone. This is for people that are going to really take responsibility for those plantings for that first year. Correct. And if you have a large property uh, where your trees are spread out over many acres, you may be better off starting a nursery uh, close to the house where you could go out and keep an eye on these things rather than taking them out and planting them out in the fields. If it's not going to be in a place where you could get to it easily and check it every few days like this. Because... Okay. How, how would you do that? Would you maybe put in like a really deep, like heavily sanded, you know, well-drained bed so that a year from now when you go to pull them up, you can keep as much of the roots intact? I mean, I don't think you'd advise sticking these things in pots, would you? We have done them in pots. A uh, five-gallon pot works well for one year. After okay. that, it gets too small. Especially with the rootstock we use, we use a rootstock called M111, and rather than having stiff rope-like roots, for the first few years, the roots are like a mop. And so even if they curl around inside the pot, you could unpot the tree and shake the dirt out of the roots, and it will fluff up again, and you could plant them and straighten the roots out, and you don't have to worry about it being root-bound. Uh, if you're doing them in the ground, it will grow much more vigorously, but I wouldn't do that. If, especially if you have like a hundred trees that you're trying to do, unless you have like a backhoe or some way to dig them up. Okay. So I did it the first year, and some of these trees uh, got an inch and a half uh, caliper on the trunk the first year, and it was murder getting them out of the ground. Really? That. Yeah, because uh, I don't have any equipment back there. I was just there with a pry bar and a shovel, and uh, about killed me trying to get these out of the ground in time. And so uh, if you have a backhoe or heavy equipment and able to uh, dig these out of the ground – Using that, then you're, uh, it's a good way to go. You'll get a lot better growth out of them than you would in pots. But if not, the five-gallon pots with uh, just plain dirt for the soil uh, works well. Uh, I've tried all kinds of per, uh, commercial mixes and commercial potting soils. And uh, just plain dirt, plain soil that's been amended uh, does just as well or better than any commercial thing that I've tried. I guess that makes sense. And I'm, I'm probably, I was probably thinking the wrong way with that then because – I'm familiar with you know starting let's say trees from seed uh, in a, in a seedling bed and then bringing them out after that first year. But in essence, that's that might be a first year graft, but it's a second year root system with with that 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 rootstock that you're buying. So uh, it's a much more substantial root mass at the end of that year than if I had grown a, a seedling tree. Correct. And yeah. what another way to do it is make like a raised bed with two by twelves. And fill that with your soil. And so at the end of the season, you could take that apart and have an easier time getting the trees out of it and planting them out in the field than you would if you planted them straight in the ground. Yeah, that's what I would do anyway. Is you put it together with screws and the 4 by 4 posts, and you could just basically dump it. And uh, that, that was kind of the way I was thinking there. But 
Yeah, you bring up a good point with the fact that those roots are going to be a hell of a lot more substantial than you would think of for a single year because it is a second year for the roots. Can you talk about that 111? Why do you use the M111? Like all these nurseries or not nurseries, all these uh, orchards out there that are doing high intensive production are using far more uh, dwarfing rootstocks. I think M111 is like a 70, 75% of full size. If you let the tree go, you are obviously pruning them down to a much more manageable size, but you're using this, this full, you know, almost a full size rootstock. Well, the hot climate has a dwarfing effect on trees, especially in the tropics. Uh, they could plant on even seedling trees and it still keeps them around, uh, They call it between two and three meters, so between six and nine feet, and able because they have to be able to get to them easily to strip the leaves off by hand. Mm. Here in Riverside, uh, we have a variable effect with our climate, and it depends on the variety. Some, like Anna, will become a big tree if you let it. Other ones uh, stay small, like Honeycrisp has a very dwarfing habit to it naturally. We've tried planting on the uh, more dwarfing rootstocks like Bud Nine. And they're just too wussy for our climate. Um, they don't get the vigor, and they uh, are susceptible to damage by borers. We have the Pacific Flathead borer here on the East Coast uh, by union agreement. They have a similar borer over there. If you do not have a borer, one will be assigned to you. Um, and the smaller trees, that borer is able to get in and girdle the trunk quickly. Because what happens here is we have... Uh, We get sunburn. It's similar to sun scald that they get back east. Back east, it's the tree freezes, and then the sun warms up the south side of the trunk, and the sap starts to flow there, and then it freezes again, and it kills that part of the bark. Here, it's just like sunburn, just like a tourist goes out on the uh, beach at Newport, and tourist is from uh, England or something, and lays out and gets fried that day. And it's the same thing. These are trees from a cool climate, and our sun will just incinerate the bare parts of the trunk, And then uh, the dead part of the trunk it makes it easy for the borers to get in there because the trunk's not able to sap them out, and they girdle the tree and kill it. And a larger, uh, more vigorous rootstock is able to uh, recover from the damage like that, recover from sunburn. And also, um, because of the lack of chill, the trees lack vigor, and so the higher vigor trees are able to push out branches, and you need branches for fruit. And so uh, we've just standardized on the M111. It keeps a nice size for us to where we're able to grow the high-density method where you have the trees closer together, but we don't need the trellis system because they're well-anchored. Uh, we get Santa Ana winds through here in the fall. It's like 60-mile-an-hour winds, uh, and it'll be 85-90 degrees during those things, and so it's really tough on the trees, and these are able to take that kind of abuse and still hold on to the fruit and still Uh, not require an expensive training system. That's especially important for us in the tropics to where there is no irrigation, there is no uh, uh, training system available to them. They can't afford it. And so the trees have to be freestanding, and they have to be able to get down to the water table there. And by using the M111, it's been a good match. Now, there are... Uh, rootstocks in the pipeline right now that we've imported from uh, Israel, and the importation is about a five-year process, and it's uh, called the Hashabi series. It's a series that uh, crossed the native Israeli uh, trees that have naturalized themselves in the hills there with the uh, British Malling Merton series, and it's a series of five rootstocks that came out in the mid-90s, 
and we've imported it here in the U.S., and it's just finishing up its last year of uh, isolation up at uh, New York, and that will be released next year, and then we'll start propagation on it and testing and see if it's uh, any better than any of the current rootstocks that we're using right now. So what are your thoughts on doing something like doing a, a seedling rootstock and then in in the second season overgrafting onto that so it would be grown in place? I know that doesn't work for shipping apples, obviously, but for people doing research, maybe planting, like Antonovoca is used as a, as a rootstock often. Uh, you can buy seed for next to nothing and planting, you know, a, a, a row of those as you were going to have your orchard and then simply grafting onto those with the roots in place and grown from seed. Yeah, that works because uh, that's how they do it in the nursery. They'll uh, plant a, a row of rootstocks and let them grow for a year, and then like in July or August, they will uh, bud graft it. They call it inoculating in England. They'll inoculate it with the variety that they want to grow, and then uh, during the winter, they cut the tree off above the bud, and they're called sleeping eyes. And then in the spring, that continues to grow and becomes the tree of that variety. And uh, that's a good way to do it if you're able to get the sign wood for the type that you're recommending and also the seed for planting it. Can we get the time on that again? Because I, I might have missed it because you said they, they graft in June? Yeah, they graft in June when they're doing bud grafting. That's but where that's you the ju- second year of June? That's not the first year, right? Second year, yeah. Okay. You let the, uh depends on the thickness of your um, – Rootstock. Usually it's easiest to do it when it's between a quarter inch and three-eighths of an inch thick. If it's smaller than that, yeah, you can do it, but you have to have pretty nimble fingers. And if it's thicker than that, then you're you're losing time on it. And so uh, the, about the second year of growth is when they'd like to do that. Okay, cool. I mean, it just seems like because, like, so I'm, I'm sure you know who Paul Wheaton is, and, and he and I agree on a lot and we disagree on a lot. But one thing we agree on, if possible – the most rigorous uh, plant will have been grown in place. It will have the, the greatest uh, resiliency because it will have the least disturbance and the least uh, crippling effect of being pruned and moved and jerked around and put into different forms of shock. I mean, we do the best we can, obviously, when we have to do those things, but there is no doubt that a tree is designed to grow where it was planted. Sure, especially with a variety like uh, Antonovka, which will tend to have very deep, uh, very extensive roots. Uh, no matter how big of a root ball you pull up, you're going to be cutting some of those roots when you pull it out. And so it would be better to be able to grow that in place if possible. Have you ever played around with that variety? Because that's like one of the few apples that will produce somewhat reliably from seed. But, you know, it's something that's from, you know, I got a bunch of seed and it was collected in the Ukraine. The Ukraine and the part of the Ukraine it came from, trust me, was is not like my climate or your climate at all. So is it because, you know, you say doesn't matter where they come from they're you know, but some don't work out. We graft onto it and grow on it, but we haven't let it fruit it out and tried the seeds from it to uh, propagate others because I could get it so cheap from the wholesaler that it doesn't pay for me to try to propagate my own. Okay, I got you. So, so but, but have you grafted it? And you have you actually produced an Antivaca apple, I guess is what I'm asking? No, everything that we've done has been grafted onto it. I haven't tried okay. the fruit itself. Yeah, we're going to try that and see how it works, just for the heck of it, because it, it don't cost much to grow them from seed, you know. I understand it makes a decent pie apple. Yeah, I'm wondering how it would do as a cider apple. I know that you you make quite a bit of cider, but you make a you know a sweet cider. Uh, not an alcoholic cider, and I, it just seems like everything I've read about it, it should have some some use as a, as a cider apple. 
Well, I have the taste buds of a 12-year-old, and I can't stand hard cider, and so I'd be the wrong one to ask. They, they, you know, give it to me, and they tell me all the care and love that's gone into it, and I taste it, and it tastes like cough syrup to me. And so uh, <laughs> I'd say it's spoiled and throw it out and give me the sweet stuff. I got you. Now, you do, you do have some work you do with cider. You guys actually make cider every year, the sweet stuff. We do, but we don't grow enough apples here for us to be able to harvest and make our own cider. We have to go up to the mountains somewhere where there's an old orchard that's been overgrown and forgotten, and uh, people will let us go up there and you know pick barrels of apples and to be able to feed the cider press because it takes you know if you have a five gallon bucket of apples, you may get a half gallon of cider out of it. So it takes a lot of apples to get cider. Gotcha. So how much do you? I mean, how much land do you have? Because you're, you're doing this more as a research. Facility, how big is your 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 little orchard there by your property, and and how many trees are on it? Spacing, all that stuff. Well, I have a hundred trees, but they're very tiny. I grow a lot of them as a Belgian fence, where they're just like a V shape and they overlap each other. They're planted eighteen inches apart. Then I have about two dozen uh, trees that are trained as a central leader to where they're you would call them a semi dwarf tree, like you're used to seeing. And we have about a hundred varieties between those, and um, I've also uh, been able to plant trees like at elementary schools. There's a few orchards, uh, like 25 to 50 trees at a few of those. Uh, public park where we've been able to plant some at, and so um, I've been having to live vicariously through other places and use them for testing. Uh, it's worked out well for them. They get a tree full of apples, and the kids get to go out and pick an apple and see what it's like rather than just seeing one on a screen or a paper one pinned to the bulletin board. And they're also able to see the bees pollinating the flowers and the uh, caterpillar is eating the uh, leaf and then another predator eating the caterpillar and seeing how the cycle of life goes with these. And a lot of them are shocked when they first are told to go pick an apple off that and eat it, and they think you know apples come from stater brothers they didn't know they come from store from a, a tree and yeah uh they're surprised that they could just bite into it and wow you mean you could make your own food and it's 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 a revelation to them here in southern california absolutely that's really awesome that you're able to do that with kids you know um but if you were advising someone from all the work you've done at this point that was putting in an orchard for production, whether it was for food, whether it was for juice apples, for sweet cider, whether it was for cider, for hard cider, and they wanted to, to maximize their productivity, you know, per acre, let's say, what kind of uh, training regimen and what kind of spacing would you recommend with the trees? Well, that depends on uh, how much you're willing to spend on it, how much you're willing to put into it, too. There are high density systems where the Trees are spaced between 18 inches to 3 feet apart, and they're trained on a five-wire trellis system. Uh, and the trees are kept um, fairly small with long, whippy branches. And it's a very productive way to grow the trees. However, uh, it has to be irrigated, so you've got to have to have drip irrigation with it. You have to have a substantial trellis system because these trees are really top-heavy, especially with fruit. And if you try to skimp on the trellis, You'll get a load of fruit and then get a, either a wet, sticky snow or a good uh, hailstorm come through there. And it's just like telephone poles. When one starts to snap, it just pulls the whole road down with you. And I got pictures of 350 12-year-old trees snapped and laying on the ground because the uh, trellis system failed on it. It also means that you have to uh, put a lot of trees in, which is a lot of money. 
because you're spacing them close like this, then with an investment like that, you're going to want to uh, get an electric fence around it to keep the deer out of it because all these are down where the deer can get to them. And so it depends on how much effort you're and money you're willing to put into it. If it's something where you're only able to get to it every couple of weeks or three weeks, I'd train them as a semi-dwarf system to where they're at least 10 feet apart okay. on an M111 stock as freestanding trees uh, as a central leader to where you're pulling the branches horizontally, but you're not training them to the trellis system, trying to get the productivity out of your land like a commercial orchard would. How would you feel about something in between on your rootstock for someone that wants to get a little bit more density due to just variety and research? I'm talking about myself here, of course. Uh, but I've got an area where my thought was about a six-by-six six spacing, six foot between rows, six between between trees. It's totally fenced. I can irrigate it. Honestly, the fencing is really rugged because it was it's about six foot tall and it was done with uh, I haven't thought about a trellis till you mentioned that now, but the the fencing was done with T posts and cattle panels uh, and then fencing over top of that. So I could actually use that to develop a trellis system for it, um, though that really would not be my my I would hope not to have to do that. Well, you're going to have light distribution because they're still going to get about uh, eight to ten feet tall. And so. You're going to be shading one tree with the other, and so you're going to have to run your rows at least north and south and then keep enough uh, space between the trees, like 10 feet, so you're able to get in between them and also they're able to get light on both sides, or you'll get all the apples at the top of the tree and none down below because of the canopy shading it, and so you're you're defeating your purpose there of trying to get a bunch of apples in a small space. So you'd recommend more of a 10 by 10 spacing then? Yeah, I would. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Now, you can multigraft on the on the trees. In other words, have three or four varieties on each tree, but you're still going to need space around that tree to be able to pick it and uh, especially look for problems. Uh, make sure you're not getting fire blight or powdery mildew or uh, bugs getting in there that you're not able to deal with. Now, that said, what's the spacing on in, in your little orchard, your, your, your yard orchard there? You're much closer than that. Yeah, I have uh, the semi-dwarf trees are spaced around nine feet. I would have liked wider than that, but that's the way it's planted, and I'm too lazy to dig them up now and move them. <laughs> the, the Belgian fence is spaced at 18 inches apart. Okay. And if I had if I had uh, space to do it, I'd like a wider spacing with a bigger tree. That's um, Michael Phillips said the semi the very dwarfing trees is too much like trying to take care of tomatoes, and so he he wants something that's not as much trouble for him. Gotcha. So on uh, a little bit more in dealing with the, the hot sun and all, you recommend uh, using like a paint whitewash mixture on the on the trunks? Yeah, this came from John Bunker in Maine. Uh, his recipe is one-third uh, all-purpose drywall compound, one-third white latex paint, and one-third water. And it's worked for us very well, both for shielding the sun from sunburn and also for preventing bores from chewing through it. I think there's something about the gypsum that's in the uh, drywall compound that they don't like and they're not able to chew through, and it's helped us a lot with the bore control. Is this something you do once? Is this something you apply annually, semi-annually, every five years? We apply it about the second season. The fir- as the tree is grown vigorously, it seems to be resistant to the sun, but once you're starting to get a harder bark that's kind of a brownish color, uh, it's susceptible to the sunburn. And so if nothing else, we paint the south side at that time, and as the tree grows, uh, it's going to be putting out horizontal branches, and those horizontal branches are also very susceptible to sunburn. And usually what happens is the sun kills one branch, that branch dies back, and all of a sudden you open up a, 
a window into the tree that's been previously uh, shaded by the canopy, and the sun's able to get to some more of those horizontal branches. And so we like to keep all the horizontal branches parted, painted, and at least the south side of the tree. If we have a chance, we'll get the whole tree. Um, I've been using uh, portable airless sprayers the last few years. Uh, with the thicker paint, it makes it a little difficult to spray through it, but it's still easier than using a brush. And kind of as we wrap up here, is there anything you do specifically for disease control? Um, you haven't mentioned spraying any kind of chemicals or anything like that, which makes me really happy. Well, unf- here in California, in Southern California, not a whole lot of fungus could live when it's 95 degrees and 5% sure. humidity. And so uh, we don't have the disease pressure a lot of the rest of the country has. Farther up the coast, like in uh, the Santa Cruz area, they, they get scab and powdery mildew really bad. And the first line of defense against those is to plant uh, varieties that are resistant to it. Uh, second of all, then you have to be pr- uh, doing the cultural things like uh, pruning for uh, air and light to get into the center of the tree. And finally, as a last resort, you'd have to uh, go to a spraying program. Uh, we don't spray anything except uh, dormant oil during the winter time, uh, because we have such a hot, dry climate here. We're able to get away with it. Now, in our African nurseries, uh, they don't have the money to buy sprays, and so they have to use the resistant varieties and do cultural things also to, in order to keep down on the scab and the mildew. Very cool, man. So you, I did hear you mention you do you do occasionally have some issues with fire blight. We do, uh, but nothing like they have back east. We're able to control it with pruning it out. Um, that's one of those things where the farmer's footsteps is the best thing for the uh, tree. Uh, ours starts a lot of the time with blo- blossom blight to where uh, the bees spread the, from blossom to blossom, and you'll see a blossom cluster uh, wilt and uh, hang over, and then the leaves on that tip will start to wilt. And if you're paying attention, you're able to get in there and uh prune that fire blight out six inches below that and that pretty much takes care of it for us Mm. one of the things about fire blight is it can't uh really thrive in temperatures above 94 degrees and usually around uh, beginning of april uh, this is either a good thing or a bad thing we'll get a stint of 100 degree weather for a couple weeks and that knocks it out for the rest of the season for us but if we have a long cooler uh, spring to where you have like foggy mornings which burning off to a hazy afternoons in the 80 degrees uh fire blight can get a hold and go rampant in that until the real good heat comes now the one thing you don't want to do with fire blight is uh is transmit it yourself in your efforts to contain it so i think i think it was you that i heard mention you know carrying like a small butane torch and when you when you you trim off some fire blight hit the 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 pruners with that torch to to sterilize it before you go to your next tree was that you i heard that from yeah, I've seen it in the past where they carry a little squirt bottle of alcohol or bleach or something like that. But if it was tough on the printing equipment, I'd be rusting it. And so the, the little mini torch works great uh, unless it has a little lock-on button on it. And then when mm. you go to stick it back in your leather pouches and it's still on it. it <laughs> you set yourself on fire. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want anybody doing that. But I, when I heard that, I was pretty sure it was your interview. I'm like... That's brilliant, and it's simple, and it's it's effective. It's if it doesn't like ninety five degrees, it probably don't like the temperature of a butane torch, which is just a few degrees more. And another fun thing with it, we have this pest called uh, woolly aphid. It's little yeah. aphids. They spin this little wax covering over the tops of themselves. They look like little tufts of cotton walking around, 
and they will inflect around infect around the edges of a, a pruning scar, like you kind of uh, uh, branch off and has little woolly aphids around there. And, and when you spray them, the wax protects them from mm-hmm. the spray. It just kind of beads up on top of them without getting to them. But boy, a little pass of that butane torch, that wax burns really good, and it's very satisfying to watch them die in agony. Yeah, woolly and wax represents wick, right? Yep. So that's that's... That's pretty awesome, man. So, hey, if, if people like what they're hearing from you, they want to get some trees from you, you have a whole list of stuff, including some of your favorites on your site. You want to tell people about your site and what the process for, is for ordering from you, because you can't just jump on your site, fill up a shopping basket, and order. True. The the site is com. K-U-F-F-E-L-C-R-E-E-K.com, if you're in the United States. And if you happen to be listening in Uganda, it's com. And uh, we have uh, uh, the list of 20 favorites if you're having problems picking out what you want to do. Uh, other than that, we have a list of the 100 varieties that we do carry. And if you have something favorite, uh, we may be able to get in time for you. That's getting awfully late in the season for that. And we also keep a list of the ones that we've rejected on that uh, website. And the website also has our teardrop trailer plans that uh, – we started selling several years ago, and they've remained popular, and so we've left them on the site also. Uh, nothing happens fast in the Apple world, and so if you're used to instant gratification of going on and filling out a shopping cart and entering your credit card and stuff, uh, you're you're moving way too fast for us. We're still the thing to where you have to fill out an order form and either email or fax it to us, and we'll send you a confirmation. And if you want to pay by PayPal, we'll send you a PayPal invoice. Otherwise, you could... Uh, pay by credit card over PayPal or mail us a check. And we're running about three to four weeks behind right now in grafting. And so even if you did do the shopping cart thing, you wouldn't be getting your order any sooner. And so uh, emailing in the order form is the best way to order from us. Uh, that's awesome, man. So the other thing I want to ask you, though, is like, so you have this huge list. Um and, like, I looked at the list you had for cider apples and said, boy, that'd be great, but I bet you he doesn't have all of those ones that he has listed there. So I emailed you, you had, like, 20 varieties available. Um, it, it, the other apples, do you have everything that's on that list, or do people need to check with you for availability before they order or what have you? No, we're doing pretty good this year. We've uh, got a good stash of signwood. Our signwood trees are getting bigger, and we have pretty much everything on the list. Okay, cool. So you have pretty much everything on the list. I don't the, think you have everything on the cider list because that list, the cider list was. The cider, cider varieties are red hot right now. And some of the suppliers who made commitments to us, we never heard from them after ah. we, we sent uh, the credit card payment and everything. And, uh, that's a different issue to take up with them. But, uh, cider varieties are red hot right now nationwide. Uh, everybody's scrambling to jump on the bag wagon because, uh, uh, people are discovering apple cider, and a lot of the stuff that you see bottled on the shelves right now is just uh, Red Delicious from Concentrate that they bought from China and then uh, reconstituted, fermented, and then shot with carbon dioxide gas and give it a spiffy name and then bottle it. So if it doesn't name the apple varieties on the bottle, that's probably what it is. And uh, people really aren't sure what to do with these yet. You know, we have some antique British and French varieties like uh, Yarlington Mill and Foxwell, but nobody knows what it's like growing those like, for say, here in Southern California. Yeah, there are great cider varieties in England and in France, but if you follow wines anyway, you know about Terrar. That's where 
Uh, you have, you know, it's, it's not just the variety. It's the light. It's the air. It's the water. It's the soil. soil that, that's what, that, that's what makes that a great variety. And if you tried it here, it wouldn't be the same. And I suspect a lot would be the same with the cider apples too. On the other hand, um, a lot of the great wine grapes in the world are tortured to perfection. In other words, they're grown on very infertile soils or in harsh climates, and that stresses it and brings out qualities in it that makes for a good wine. And I think every region is going to have a cider apple that does the same thing. In other words, uh, we have apples that only taste like this when they've had 113 degree heat when they're ripening. You know, mm. what, what does that do to a Bramley seedling apple, which is very good here in our climate? Uh, we have one called Wicks and Crab. It's actually a, a California native. It's from the Sierra foothills. And if you've ever been up in the Sacramento or the Folsom area, you know that even though they get some, uh, good cool weather and snow in the wintertime, it's stinking hot up there and you get 100 degree weather for weeks at a time. And so this is a cider apple that's been adapted to our climate. And every region in the U.S. will have those apples that really sing in your climate, and there's no good way around it. You just got to test a whole bunch of them. Yeah, I agree, and I, I think you're onto something there. And it's it's kind of what I'm trying to you know figure out here with with cider varieties. It's why I'm planting anything and everything I can get my hands on. Uh, you mentioned the way with grapes, so like one of the one of the, the great grapes uh, of Beaujolais is uh, Gamay. And if you look at where those grapes are grown, they're pretty much grown on like a gravel hillside. Like you can see the roots crawling across the top of the ground. And if you grow that grape in a rich, fertile soil, it makes a wine that you you, you might turn into vinegar. Um, but you're, you're, it's, it's not going to grace a fine table. And I think there's there's something to be said for that, making the tree work to bring out the terroir of the, of the fruit. And I think there's just a tremendous amount of work to be done. And... Uh, I think the cider industry is is an incredible growth industry. Whether whether you know you choose to partake in the the environment or not, I think the growth is there, and I think there's a lot to be done because the truth is most of the commercial ciders are garbage. They they are not why the craft cider industry is growing because they're some of them are not just made out of dessert apples, which is a problem in the first place, but they're actually back sweetened. I mean, if you drink, I don't want to put anybody down, but if you drink a, an Angry Orchard cider. There is no way that any cider that's properly attenuated and fermented tastes that sweet. It's not possible because there's too much sugar left in there. And I think that it's going to take some work by people to figure this out because we lost prohibition's what killed it. I mean, there were cider orchards all over this country. And uh, after prohibition, they started making it out of surplus red delicious and stuff like that and ruined it. You know, if I was a, a cider maker, I'd be excited because of the incredible palate that you have available in any climate. Ours is a hot, dry climate. We also work with hot, wet climates. And there's still a range of flavors from battery acid tart to uh, blandly sweet and everything in between that you have to work with. And so every region can come up with a cider that sings, I'd say much more so than with a grape variety because there's just – uh, the apples are so adaptable to each climate, and you have so many to pick from. There's something that's going to work for you, no matter where you're at. I think there's a lot to be done with seedling apples for that purpose, too, to figure out new varieties, because most of what we have, like I, I read a couple of books on your recommendation. One was Old Southern Apples, and I can't remember the other one. But when I read that, it became clear to me where all of these apples 
came from and how ha- I always thought of apples as being something you know they came here from England and 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 France and you know further back Kazakhstan and stuff like that and most of the varieties coming from somewhere else but there was this just plethora of new apples developed here over multi hundreds of years because every time a homesteader went somewhere and decided okay I'm going to sell this 40 acre piece they took two or three acres and planted apple seeds there and when one of them t- turned out to be something special they you know he grafted or what they did at the time a lot was pulling uh, uh root root cuttings out to to replant uh, and and propagate that and it seems like with this cider boom there's a whole new opportunity for that to kind of you know hit a resurgence we don't have as many people with 40 acres of homestead to do it anymore but if everybody does a little bit it might be surprising what we come up with yeah it's it's kind of like the lottery um some people will plant 20,000 30,000 and and come up with nothing and then other people will plant one and hit a winner and so uh, <laughs> well yeah granny smith right that was like some scraps thrown away by an actual granny in australia and it was like crab apple and it turned into this you know apple that is one of the most iconic well-known apples in the world yeah we have a lot of breeding programs you know they'll go through tens of thousands of seedlings and not come up with anything that's much better than the parents and we have other ones that just popped up in an orchard somewhere and it turns out the the apple pickers would gravitate toward that tree during their break time and be eating that and it got the owner's attention and say hey, what's different about that tree and it turns out to be a, a seedling coming up from the uh uh either an apple that fell down or from a rootstock sucker or something and uh found out that it's a great tree and then they patented it and marketed it And I think the other thing with the cider industry, again this isn't your forte so to speak or whatever, but a good cider apple in not always, but in general is, you know, they call them spitters a lot of times. They don't taste good. So we're growing for a totally different profile and characteristic in that world. So we can do things like brook bricks readings, acidity readings and stuff like that. Uh and very I think very very quickly determine because if we're growing these things as seedlings, grafting a whip on in two, three years, you can find out you know win or loser here and and I think there's a lot of a lot of ground to be covered yeah especially with the cider apples because when you ferment it all the sweetness goes away and so you're dealing with the flavor that's uh, that's there after the sweetness is gone and also a lot of the harsher acids during the fermentation process will uh, convert into more pleasing more palatable a- acids and that's why you're able to take a uh, apple that is undigestible by humans in its raw form and also it makes it something that's pleasing to the palate in its fermented form. Yeah, cuz I mean where I grew up there were seedling apple trees all over the place. Everything from being planted on purpose to kids pitching a core somewhere and an apple grew and and none of them were great apples, but that's what all the local cider was made from and this was Pennsylvania. And no one cared what tree they were using. It was just you collected up all you could, you put them through a grinder, you put them through a press. and the guy up the road that made all the booze made the apple cider and and distributed it at you know after it was done um so i think that it's a different world and and there's a lot of ground to cover there but again real quick we kind of did this already but let's do it again because we're at the end for the real this time how can people find your website and order from you the website's at www.cufflecreek.com k u f f e l c r e e k.com and you are are you going to be presenting at uh, permaculture voices Uh doesn't ring a bell. Okay. It's Diego's thing. I figured since you were on a show you might be there. I was hoping I was going to get to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not though. Anyway, man, uh I do appreciate you being with us today. 
And uh, if you have something new come up, you want to come back on and talk about apples. Uh, we like food here. We like apples. Uh, just give it, give me a, a ring, and we'll get you back on the air, man. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, folks. And with that, this has been Jack Spearfield today, along with Kevin Hauser, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living